So here on Keenan Yoga today, we have James Raphael, a movement and meditation educator. Um, and I think uh, you said something like transversing the, the, uh, the, the journey of, uh, from, from, you know, mental health, addiction and, um, and uh, back into health, back into health. So you didn't, I didn't say it half as well as James, but, you know, there's definitely a background there to, to look at, James. Uh, so, well, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you for coming. Yeah. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to yeah. be with you. Thank you. I, I saw James's stuff uh, came up a, a while back on my feed, and uh, it just uh, incredible. You've got to look at the stuff. Uh, incredible images. Uh, he's uh, obviously very strong, but also very flexible. So he's doing yoga, but there's definitely uh, mm. other movements going on as well. I mean, yeah, he's doing yoga postures. We don't know about the inter- internals, but uh, also meditation and qigong is in there. And, uh, and particularly what piques my interest is you've got someone who's a uh, yeah, who, who looks great, um, but also is sharing quite kind of openly um, about a background, a background of difficulty and uh, that got him into yoga. So uh, I suppose we'll just start off with the obvious place, James, as I always do, really, uh, lack of uh, inspiration, and just ask you how you, how you got into yoga and, and, and how, you, uh, how you used it to overcome difficulties in your life, I suppose. Right. And it's always, I think whenever people try and ask this question, they're like, I'm going to give you the short story. And they talk for like 20 minutes. <laughs> Oh, no, give so, me as long as you want. I'll, we can do the I'll whole hour on this. I'm, I'm really really I'll try and sort of give you the potted summary. Um, so, I mean, I guess my, I guess like a consistent class-based practice started for me about 17 years ago when I first moved to London. Um, before that, um, so I actually grew up in the Canary Islands in Tenerife, um, where I know there's a Purple Valley. And yeah. um, it was very outdoors kind of, in the thick of nature kind of upbringing, you know, me and my sisters were playing out in sort of desert landscape in like old dried up caves and lava beds in the mm. ocean. And there was this kind of physicality to the place. Um, and I think because of that, I was always obsessed with movement. I was very interested in the physical body and its position in space uh, and in different spaces. Um, and my mum had a couple of yoga books, you know, when I was a kid, um, she had an Iyengar yoga book. She had a book by the incredible supermodel um, Raquel Welsh, God rest her soul, <laughs> <laughs> um, who um, had this total body beauty book. And there were these incredible black and white photos of her looking at this total glamazon um, in this sort of white leotard, you know, catching her heels in Kapotasana, doing these amazing things. She, she really had an in- incredible practice. Um, and I just thought it was the most fabulous thing, you know, ever. It was like a, a young, not quite aware gay boy. Yeah. <laughs> I thought this was amazing. So, so my entry, my entry point to yoga posture was that it's a bit, um, bit of an odd entry point. Um, but then I guess, you know, I, I graduated from Cambridge university doing an English degree, which was quite hmm. intense. Um, um, mm. they, you know, for me, there was a, mm. ah, did you? Yeah. Amazing. Mm. It's, it's a, it's a right. kind of, um, yeah. literature is about life, right? It's about everything. It's about philosophy, about people, about relationships. Yeah, you can take it any way you want. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, you know, the background to that, my history had been uh, a lot of depression, obsessive compulsive disorder and physical self-harming. Um, mm. anxiety, panic attacks, a lot of that was already present in my teenage years um, mm. and kind of moved into my kind of academic years. And then I landed in London, I guess, what, 20, 21 years old, um, started my first corporate job, 
and just didn't know what to do with it. So all of this was kind of swirling on and I sort of been taking drugs quite intensively. Um, I've done quite a good job of taking a large amount of drugs in a small amount of time. <laughs> um, and I sort of was, was in a mess basically. Um, and a friend tried to intervene and said I should go and see a, a, a drugs counselor in Soho. So I went and started working with a key worker and they suggested that I go and try meditation. Um, mm. And so I, I went and trotted along to Covent Garden to this. Um, have you ever been to this? There's a bookstore called Inner Space. I think it's. Yeah, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Amazing, amazing little place. It's just this cute little books, bookshop and it has a meditation room downstairs, which I'm sure you know. Yeah. And um, run yeah. by these wonderful women, the Brahma Kumaris. And um, so I cultivated my early practice there. But very soon after that, um, you know, started traveling to India, started going on silent retreats, um, particularly in some of the Burmese traditions, SN Goenka, mm. people know Goenka based um, Vipassana. Mm. Um, and I was also practicing in classes in London. Um, and true to my, <laughs> true to my addictive nature, I threw myself headlong into it, which is a real gift, actually. That kind of addictive personality energy, if you can direct it in the right way, it can be really a wonderful support. Um, so I did everything I could get my hands on. Um, you know, I was doing Ashtanga, I was practicing Mysore. I was going to forest yoga classes, Dharma Mitra, I was doing Iyengar, I was doing Vinyasa, I was doing a lot of restorative to try and settle my fried nervous system. But but mostly those early years I did a lot of Kundalini. I was very involved in the Kundalini community in London the first years of my practice, um, which at that point was really helpful. Um, yeah, and things that evolved. sounds like it would stir up your nervous system. You think it's settled yeah. down? Yeah. It's absolutely settled down. But one of the right. things I'm really keen to vocalize, I think, just from my experience, um, mm, mm. is that often often people come to a practice like yoga or meditation, kind of very wired or anxious, stressed, these quite ungrounded energy states, right? We kind of, many people come to them with those energy signatures. And often we're told to sit still or to focus or to stop or to empty the mind or whatever it is. And I feel like it kind of gives a whiplash to a lot of people. Um, and I think a lot of my perspective now is that there are ways to bridge being in that kind of nervous system and maybe moving towards something which is a little bit more grounded, which isn't such an abrupt, harsh stop. Mm, mm. Um, and, and that was definitely my experience with these kind of addictive energies. I, I needed something like Kundalini. I needed something like the strength of um, very physical Ashtanga practice to feel safe, actually, to feel okay. Yeah. I, I needed yeah, yeah, that yeah. intensity. Mm. Mm. It's kind of like a homeopathic like treats like, really. You, know? you give a little bit of the yeah. same energy. It's like, actually, what I used to find is a little bit, you know, it's kind of, suffered for many years with panic attacks and anxiety and all that mm. stuff you know and i actually started a little bit of coffee actually helped me calm down you know? yeah. because you think the, the opposite yeah. you know if you're too much obviously it tips you over you know <laughs> but you know you start to realize that actually like being told to calm down is maybe the worst thing you can do with someone who's suffering with anxiety like you know just calm down was, you know, but obviously i would if i could you know like so the point of the ashtanga and all these more frenetic practices is uh you just almost 
burn yourself out with it, you know, and then you calm down, mm. you know, you're going, you know, you're going, you're using the energy in the body for a more focused way and gradually it seems to settle down. So if I just take a rejoinder before I let you go again, is that I think it was the best instruction I ever got from a yoga teacher was from John Scott, who said, you know, practice how you feel, you know, don't try and be, you know, because don't try to be calm if you don't feel calm, practice how you feel and, and that kind of works, right? Because then you're, you're almost like off the hook, you're not trying, because I think a lot of it to do with the states of, you know, all these kind of difficulties with mental health we face is the discrepancy between how you feel inside and how you feel you ought to be on the outside, you know, and the jar between those two, right? So if you just allowed an experience on the outside, then somehow there's less of a, a, a painful uh, bridge between these two, you know, different states, inner and outer, you know? Mm, 100%. And I, I think it... I think it raises this really interesting question that, you know, we as practitioners in yoga spaces, in movement spaces, in meditation spaces, um, there's this assumption that we're really embodied because we're working with the body and the nervous system and it's interoceptive or introspective. Um, but, you know, I spent years, <laughs> years doing these very physical embodied practices. But in a way, all I was doing was really bypassing the wisdom of the body. I was aware of what I was feeling, but I was still bypassing it or choosing to fix it rather than choosing to be with things as they are. Um, and that was a big learning for me, actually. Mm, mm. I guess it's levels, isn't it? Because as you say, I mean, first of all, I think it really helped me to do something by dynamic to settle things down and not I mean, for me, it wasn't really drugs so much, uh, more like alcohol, really. I started having a real trouble with drinking all the time, you know, and, um, you know, university before lectures, after lectures, and then, you know, it would just carry on all the time, really. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's okay when you're young, you know, and I felt, you know, like, okay, I'm 20, I'm 21, everyone's doing it kind of thing, you're at uni, you know, it's whatever. But then I thought, you know, you're going to be in serious trouble, you know, because when you get out of here, you know, it's not going to be so funny when, you know, a couple of years down the line, you know, when everyone's got jobs and, you know, they're not all partying. Like, so I thought, you've got to do something about this, you know, because you're masking something and, uh, and it worked, you know, I mean, they took that as exactly you say, you take the addictive personality because, you know, a lot of it's this, this, yeah, there's certain people who have this tendency to, to over focus on things, you know, and, 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 and fixate, you know, and obviously you have it a little bit and, and I certainly have it, I think. And, uh, and you take that and you put it elsewhere, you know, you have to have something to replace. I think you mentioned that in a post, uh, you have to have something to replace, uh, you know, if you have an yeah. addiction to replace it with something more positive, is obvious. you can't just take nothing. You know, you're in the void of, you know, what do I do now? You have to replace it with something. But at a certain point, as you rightly say, I think I started to realize that the practice every day as I was doing it was actually kind of numbing me. You know, I was able to do Ashtanga in such a way that I, I created such stimulation in the body that I almost felt nothing at all but due to overstimulation, you know. So I was using it to, in purposefully in a way, saying I was embodying myself more, getting in touch with myself, blah, blah, blah. But actually completely not doing that, you know. Um, what, what changed for you? How, how, did you, how did you notice that? And, and how did you then adapt the practice or practices to, uh, to actually try and embody yourself when you realized this was the case? I think just, I mean, I'm just sharing a lot of resonance with what you're articulating. And, you know, I think in those very early years of my practice, you know, the, the kind of ecstasy states of Kundalini, the very strong physical states of some of the other practices um, were, you know, of great service to me. Um, but in a way they were just a, a pathway 
for me to become more comfortable with practices like restorative yoga, like true restorative yoga, um, and maybe even yoga nidra. And although I was meditating, I think from from day one, you know, I, I in ways started before yoga even. Um, a lot of the practice in my meditation was very body scanning focused, which is sort of this systematized way of just going through noting sensations in a very um, equanimous state. You kind of feel something, you move on, you feel something, you move on over and over and over again. That was my practice for about seven years. Um, and then there's a sort of way of detaching. I think um, you're aware physically, but you detach from it. And it was when, when I started to encounter practices like Qigong and Tai Chi, these incredible Chinese practices, um, that something really started to shift for me and my understanding of what in being embodied was really changed. Mm. I became very interested in somatics world, you know, the works of uh, body, mind centering, body, brain, bridge, Cohen, um, was sort of a big part and still is a, a big part of my practice and, and what I'm informed by. Um, and it was this movement back to, oh, the body has its needs and desires and want for comfort and want for pleasure. And that's not a dirty thing. <laughs> like it's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, the body isn't dirty. It doesn't need to be burned away. It doesn't need to be punished. Um, and sort of all of that narrative goes very closely with addiction, addiction, very often stemming from shame um, shame around body, shame around self identity. Um, and so for me, moving towards these more somatic embodied practices, these, these softer, slower practices, um, is really a way of starting to engage with deeper traumas or deeper shame. Um, at least for me in my journey with mm. addiction. I think you've put something which is Sim which is simple, but not always easy to articulate in simple terms that it's true that I think the yoga I and mean, the thing with yoga is it's a static, uh, essentially the asanas are a, lo a lot of yoga practice, a static thing. So, I mean, at the core of the yoga philosophy in the first place is this really the wish more, as, as you just said, it's actually the wish for more disembodiment and embodiment that we're actually in classical yoga, when Sashna springs from is trying to separate a sense of self out of the body and the desires and the you know the wish to entertain the material world to come to a pure or a more pure experience of consciousness um which is i'm always fighting against this because really that's not really what we want to be doing these days you know we don't want to be transcending the body and transcending a material world i mean you know like unless anyone knows any different i, I don't really think there's many people if we ask people to put their hands up who are going to say that that's that's what they're looking for you know that they're, they're we're looking for a more comfortable experience of ourselves in, in embodied sense. So I think either we, you know, we approach yoga differently or, uh, yeah, we start to also inform it with other aspects of yoga philosophy, maybe coming from Tantra or other things we can get our hands on or, you know, more practical based disciplines like Chai, Qigong and uh, Tai Chi, um, more in the world kind of modalities. So, yeah. so we don't end up detaching ourselves more from our bodies. Yeah. I think it's also where I think there's a great beauty in kind of contemporary trauma-informed approaches and trauma-informed therapy and this sort of wider availability of those discourses and those perspectives, I think, is starting to really positively impact many of these traditions and historical practices 
you know, in ways that they can evolve and move forwards in even more holistic and, and helpful ways. Mm, mm, mm. I don't, yeah, I mean, I think there's two different things. I think I always go back on the same things. You've got the classical yoga perspective, which really is kind of up and out, you know, transcending the body and holding as still as you can to separate, you know, to separate mind from body. And, and it's very kind of um, easy to get into from Western rationalism, which has always done the same, you know, so we're kind of back in that kind of paradigm or the tantric idea, which is to further embody, which is, and the tantric you know, practices of yoga are actually very much to do with trauma. And, uh, you know, I had a guest, Christopher Wallace, recently on the podcast, and he was talking about yeah. the number of metaphors of digestion there are in tantra, digesting emotions, digesting experiences. They're actually there in, in tantric texts, you know. So I think, you know, hmm. there is that idea of trauma, you know, re resolving, because all karma does is it's just blocking up the, the hard drives, you, you know. If you think of cleansing yourself from karma, you really are in the present moment with a clear consciousness. So there's nothing in a way different from modern trauma therapy. The more you, you, you're able to get rid of those, those things that are blocking you from the present, the more you are in a, quite a high state of awareness. Right. With nothing to fix in the end, ultimately. You know, it's feeling that there's, the we're drawn to, <laughs> we're drawn to practice because we, we feel there's something to correct or something to fix. And at a certain point you come full circle with that and you realize there was nothing to fix in the first place, but you had to take the, the journey anyway. <laughs> On a more practical note, James, I, you know, bring it back to our practical sense. How do you mm. tessellate or how do you interrelate your, you know, the, these various practices modalities? Because I know you practiced Ashtanga for, a, you know, for a good period. Um, and I kind of feel that your practice is more, let's say, uh, varied now than just simply Ashtanga yes. practice. Well, I know you do yeah. many other things um, and Tai Chi and Qigong and the meditation. And, and also I, I've seen you in the gym as well, doing strength training and the formidable um, strength you have and the flexibility you have in backbends and stuff is just incredible. So how do you relate all those things together in, in your day? On, on, first of all, just simply on a practical level, like do you do one thing one day and another yeah. thing other day? You know, how, how does that go? I mean, everything that I'm about to say is underwritten with the caveat that I have completely engineered and leveraged all the privilege that I have, which is considerable, <laughs> to create a life where I can devote a lot of time to this stuff. You know, I, I created a life and a schedule deliberately and sacrificed certain things so that I can find a way of doing all these things because I'm obsessed with them. Um, but how does my practice or my kind of my movement practice look across the course of the week? Um, so I've always had a daily sitting meditation practice, always. Um, that's been my cornerstone. It still is. Periods where that's shorter. It's a little bit shorter these days, maybe only 20 minutes in the morning or so. There's been periods when it's been two hours, two and a half hours, very early. Um, right now it's a little shorter. Um, I will do some sort of very gentle movement practice in the morning these days, afterwards. Um, usually it's a little bit of qigong or a little bit of floor rolling, kind of somatic stuff. Um, mm. I don't typically typically do a strong physical vinyasa style practice in the mornings anymore, um, but maybe I will again. So I have my little morning routine, my journaling, my coffee, whatever it is that I do. Um, and then I'll typically teach. Um, usually I'm a morning to mid-morning lunchtime kind of teacher. So then I will head to the gym and do my strength training. Um, at the moment, that's five or six days a week. I work with a coach on a plan, which is great because I you know, spend a lot of my life teaching and helping other people. So it's great to have someone do that for me, to outsource mm. that. 
Um, <laughs> which again, it's, it's a huge privilege, but it really, it's, it's just, it reduces the indecision of, should I be doing this? Should I not be doing this? I just don't have to think about that. He organizes that for me. <laughs> it's great. And I do it diligently. Um, and so after, after the strength training, whatever it is, if it's upper body or lower body, um, I'll then spend a significant amount of time um, doing, I guess, either handstand hand balancing practice, which I, I don't consider this my yoga practice, by the way, this is just purely handstand hand balancing. <clears throat> Or some days it will focus more on deep stretching. For instance, if I train legs at the gym, I am pretty much always going to do quite deep hip stretching and more kind of contortion-based stretching. I've done a little bit of contortion here and there. They've got some great approaches and techniques um, that I think we can learn lots from. Um, so I'll do a lot of hip stuff. If I've trained upper body, typically I will either do uh, a backbending session. I don't want to call it practice because it's not practice. It's just, I'm just doing backbends like a gymnast or a contortionist would do. It's not my yoga. Um, or I'll do loads of forward folds and leg behind the head stuff. So it kind of, I'll kind of use the time after my workout to focus on particular stretches or patterns in, in my body. Um, and something that I decided quite a few years ago to do that's been really helpful to me is in my actual physical-based yoga practice, kind of posture, modern postural practice, I decided to remove anything that I was really striving for from my own self-practice. So say I wanted to get better at handstands, or I wanted to progress Hanumanasana or, you know, Samakonasana or whatever it is, or Kapo. <laughs> and I decided to actually remove them from my practice completely so that my practice could retain a sense of, of it not being about striving or performing, but at the same time acknowledging that I do want to do those things. I spent years trying to deny my ego. Like, I don't want to achieve anything. I don't want these poses. It means nothing to me. It's like being honest. Like, yeah, I want to do them. I'm going to lose them at some point. I might not be able to do them. I hope I'm not attached to them, but I still want to enjoy the process. But I decided to take those things out of... Um, <clears throat> out of my actual practice. Um, and so that's kind of the rhythm. And then in terms of my actual kind of flow or vinyasa based practice, that no longer happens six, seven days a week. That happens maybe three or four days a week as a, as a longer kind of more, what we think of as a self practice, you know, hour, hour mm. and a half vinyasa. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> that would, that would, that would appear at the end of one of those workouts or stretching sessions. So those, those afternoon periods can be quite long. So say I'm training weights for an hour and a half, then I'm training maybe handstands or backbends, whatever it is for half an hour, 45 minutes. Then I'll do an hour, an hour and a half practice after that. But that's probably only three or four days a week that I'm doing that long session. Yeah, um, but that is a long session. I engineered my life. I can spend, <laughs> I can spend, I spend five hours, you know, in the gym, in the studio, most days oh, wow. in the afternoon um four or five hours and, and i love it and yeah i did you, right now have the capacity <laughs> i won't forever did you always do the, did you always do the strength alongside the yoga or did you add that on later how did that work so i really i really want to talk about this point because one of the things that i love so much about what you've shared recently um and also um what a practitioner um called dave christensen who i, who I know is appearing with you soon um, 
both of you have talked about the importance of spinal flexion <laughs> and kind of not removing spinal flexion from the practice. So the way that this threads back to your question, there's a thread here between that and how I came to weight training. So I've had a chronic pain pattern in my lower back since I was about 13, 14 years old. Um, and in my early years, I was from time to time weight training because I liked the aesthetic. I kind of just thought it was incredible. We can, we can change the way our body looks. We can change the shape of the muscles. I was always really interested in that. I thought it was beautiful. Um, but I dabbled. I didn't really commit. Um, and then there was a long period where I was just practicing a lot. And it was a period when I was practicing a lot in the mornings early, you know, I was in my sort practice. And um, my back pain got worse and worse. And the chronic pain pattern really became life-altering. Um, hmm. You know, nine months of, of pain all day, every day. I was teaching, I felt really disingenuous. I felt like a failure as a teacher because I'd be teaching my practices. I'd be standing up there trying to hide the fact that I was in awful pain, not able to sleep, sleeping on the floor, um, you know, in tears a lot of the time because it really was overwhelming and relentless, that pattern. Um, and so I saw everybody I could. I had MRIs, spine was healthy. I had chiropractic, I had osteo. I saw the best physios. I, you know, it's very similar story to, to what Dave Christensen shares. Mm. Nobody, nobody could help me. There was no obvious issue. Um, and then I saw some of her posts, um, and that she had this, this course at the time called Four Pillars. And I thought, okay, I'll give it a go. And one of the big things that came out of that for me from her teaching was she discovered that taking a forward folds with a rounded back, holding the feet and pulling back against the feet to kind of firmly push into flexion it gave me a huge release and a huge relief from that pain pattern because I'd spent my entire life prioritizing extension mostly. Mm -hmm. um, and as part of that, I started weight training um, to strengthen particularly glutes, deep gluteals, you know, external rotators of the hips. And these days, if I'm strength training at least three or four days a week and I'm doing a significant amount of forward flexion in my spine, I have zero pain. It fixed it yes. after years Amazing. and years I mean, and years. The irony of it is, if you look at you know pictures of Patabi Joyce or Krishna Bhajari, they're all in flexion. You know, the forward folds are done in flexion. Um, and I don't know where this idea of extending really comes from in yoga and uh, pulling forward and having a flat back. And it's such a shame because you know it's such an easy fix. I mean, it's great as a teacher because I've done it for so many people, and you just because it's you know it's it just. It's such a simple thing to say and do it and it works for anyone you know, suffering from this. Because uh, I had it as well. You know, you're pulling forward. You're doing a whole primary series or whatever. You're pulling forward and forward and forward, overextending your lower back and it becomes weak and overextended. And then it cramps up, I guess. It kind of clenches to kind of hold itself together, you know. And that along with the fact that, uh, you know, you're doing kind of eccentric stretching consistently without any kind of isometric or, or kind of strength building you know, aspects of, uh, of using your muscles, then, you know, you're, uh, you're not really balancing the body when it needs tension as well. It needs tension as well as uh, extension. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is life changing and it's fantastic. I'm, I'm really pleased you came up 
and I wish everyone would hear this hopefully and, and not keep putting themselves forward in the forward fold because it just doesn't this is useless I mean, not only is it unhelpful for the body it just doesn't do anything either it's just bad for the you overstretch your hamstrings and just doesn't do anything so yeah let's let's hope we can this, change things here. If there's, if there's sort of one thing that I, you know, to anyone who comes to me, any of my students, uh, practitioners that come to me, um, kind of asking about how they can feel more balanced in their body, feel more integrity in their structure, um, I'll say start lifting weights. <laughs> I'm the biggest advocate for weight training. I think body weight is great and calisthenics-based movement is great, but I think something really specific happens to the body when it's challenged with external load outside of itself um so many of our long-term health markers you know bone density grip strength all these things that are correlated with longevity they're also centered around strength and, and strength training using external weight using external load is one of the most efficient ways to achieve that so i would always encourage um adding some kind of weight training um i know whatever it you is. can say it these days People aren't that shocked anymore. Yeah. I mean, I think it's coming out there. You know? <laughs> I don't, well, I mean, the thing is, I mean, it's, you know, this what we're doing with the yoga is not really ever meant to be a, a something to physically train the body. You know, it was taken on later, really. It's, it's doing something mm -hmm. else. But if you want to use it in that manner, well, you can use it a bit in that manner. But, you, you know, you're better off also doing some other strength training stuff as well. Yeah. I mean, I've mm -hmm. done it for the last number of years now, you know, five years, I reckon. And, yeah huge huge difference so I, I totally recommend it in fact i would say the opposite the back extensions like um i think you could call it an extension something like um first of all when i started trying to do a uh, i don't know what you call it where you've got the bar on your back and you're going down like a squatty like a, it's a yeah. squat you know, yeah you, you're lifting yeah. up like that you know um that that kind of thing was a back extension i think when you're coming up that first of all hurt my back, but in the end, it, well, not hurt it badly, but it was very challenging. But that really helped my, my strengthen my back a lot from all the over flexible of the flexibility of your lower back and this kind of thing in yoga with the back bends and stuff. So, yeah, I really feel so much more stability in my back, at least my back and my shoulders as well, all kinds of things. So, I'm yeah, I'm I'm totally with you there. Um, is there anything you would recommend particularly for people who say, well, you know, I haven't got time, you know, I haven't got time to do yoga and I haven't got time to do gym and I'm not in James' position where I've got five hours to, you know, right. muck around in the gym every day. Wait, what, what would you say to that? Like, is there anything, one, two exercises that you would say you recommend them to do at home or anything? Can you say anything? It's really difficult because, you know, mm. it's always anything that I say is always going to operate from a position of my own privileges, my own biases and, you know, things that I can't see within myself. Right. Um, because we can say like, Oh, well, everybody could find five minutes in the morning or anybody can create 10 minutes in the morning. Um, but there's always a kind of negative judgment in that. And it might genuinely be that that's just really, really untenable. You know, if your family work commitments, whatever it is, you know, health conditions, accessibility issues, whatever. Um, but it's, I think it's first looking at the week, the course of a week and being really honest about, are there certain things that could be let go of, um, to create just a little bit more space? Maybe there's just something you can, you can kind of release. Cause I think also this idea we, we have to do more, we've got to cram it in. It's like, no, you've got to let go of something first. <laughs> we don't want to be more busy, right? <laughs> we want to do all these extra nice things, but ideally, not somehow try to fit them into something which is already really tightly packed. 
my first point of call would always be, okay, well, is there anything that could be released slightly or trimmed down slightly? And what extra time does that give you? And then with whatever extra time that is, it, you know, from a, from a, if we're talking specifically about weight training or strength training, it's really looking at kind of evolutionary movement patterns and what we call compound lifts. So things like squats, things like lunges, deadlifts, you know, whole body movements. You know, I think machines at the gym are great for certain things, but using free weights challenges the body, challenges core stability um, in really wonderful ways. Um, but I would tend to, for your kind of typical yoga practitioner, probably the areas where we could look to create more balance through strength training would be anything that's very pull-based, sort of the obvious thing, right? You know, it was sort of, we're, we're in a very push-dominant practice. Um, anything where you're able to kind of pull down something from overhead or row something to really bring the integrity of the back body back online where we can develop degrees of imbalance through a push dominant um, movement practice. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So anything pull, I would strongly encourage in the upper body, but also in, in the lower body, we kind of, we don't necessarily think of the lower body as being able to pull. We, we kind of think about squatting and things like that, but anything where we're actively strengthening the hamstrings, either through things like straight leg deadlifts or through movements where we're flexing the knee and curling the heel back towards the glutes with some kind of external load. Um, because also kind of getting out of overstretch and hamstring yoga, but issues mm. I think can be really, really helped by strength training. Um, and I think with hamstring strength training them, through range, um, through kind of contracted range, but also strength training and and range. I'm a big fan of end of range training with weight. So as an example, what that might look like is... Yeah, what is the end of range training? So say for hamstrings, in a typical Mm. deadlift, you have a bar in front of you, the plate's on the end, you bend over, you typically bend the knees, you hold the bar... And then it's a hip hinge. So you'll lengthen the legs a little bit. It's a little bit like pushing up. And then you'll hinge at the hip to stand. So, you know, it's the kind of the mm-hmm. pattern of Katasana, right? It's chair pose. Um, and typically the knees are, are sort of quite bent through that range. Moving more towards versions of that where the legs stay straighter, usually using mm-hmm. less weight. Spine mm-hmm. staying kind of straight, legs staying straighter. So um, a little bit closer, I suppose, to... Um, Ardha Uttanasana, kind of halfway up position. Um, and now what I do as well with, because, you know, I have a lot of flexibility in the hamstrings, I will typically do that with my feet raised up on something. So I'm still using mm. external mm. weight, but I'm going down into negative space. So I'm finding the end range of stretch in my hamstrings, but then loading it and then standing back up to um, strengthen those tissues at end range. And I found that not only kind of has preserved and helped that flexibility stay really feeling really stable, really healthy in my body. I think it's actually given me more flexibility. Um, I'm stretching probably far less than I was when I was doing my very intensive six, seven days a week. Um, But I actually feel that in a very physical sense, um, physical practice has really developed and progressed a lot through practicing less and doing more strength training. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Contra- yeah, controversially, yeah, yeah. you know. 
Variety. Um, I think it's about variety. Well, maybe quality over quantity as well. Um, I think mm. what it is, is a, it's an eccentric contraction of the muscles, isn't it? So the muscles are being pulled apart slowly. Uh, mm. I, think that, I think that's what you yeah. mean. Um, yeah. That's it's exactly yeah, what I mean, it's gonna, yeah. Sorry, James. Trying to get yeah, it. I mean, you, you can you can you can get it in you know you can get it in yoga practice. So say in seated forward fold in Paschimottanasana, um, you know, there's a way of practicing that where the legs are disengaged completely, or there's a way of practicing that where you're pressing the knees and the heels into the ground, um, and so there's ways of of building some kind of contractile tension and strength in the muscles when you're yeah. in what might be seen as being a classically passive position. Um, another example, I'm quite a fan of in a pose like front splits or Hanumanasana. Um, initially, at least having the back toes tucked and the back knee off the floor rather than dropping straight down into passive flexibility straight away. So when I'm working into front splits, I'm actively scissoring the legs together. And what I'm yeah, really specifically yeah. doing is I will be... Um, pushing down to the back foot. I'll be pressing my back knee up so that I've got a little bit of um, tension in the back leg. And I'm yeah. probably pulling the front heel towards me. So there's this kind of active, I mean, it's banda, really. It's one expression of banda. You're creating a stable point in the center that the legs yeah. Yeah. find the flexibility through. Hold there and then into a more passive expression of the pose. Um, but I'm always yeah, I don't, looking I, I... to... I generally don't yeah. teach the passive passive uh, stretch very much at all. I mean, I think if you're going into any yeah. posture, there's some degree of passivity that the muscle has to yield or, or some mm. group of muscles has to yield to allow you to come out from a neutral point altogether. Otherwise, you'd be, you know, literally mm. stuck in a little box, you know. Mm. So you have you know, some, something that after that, I would say, I always teach the active, an active version of the stretch, really. So, yeah, I think, uh, yeah exactly. Although I don't know anatomical terms. I think we're coming from the same place. I would say, though, that, you know, mm. I mean, I try in a couple of the hamstring. There's this one, uh, this, uh, I'm sure you know the one. You lie in your stomach. You're at the gym, right? You know, you lie in your stomach and you put a bar, like you're mentioning, but on their legs and you pull it up towards your bum. You know, you know that, that for me, I've tightened my hamstrings to shit, that one. You know, so I, I quit it completely. You know? Is it, I, what I wonder, I, I don't know why, why it did it just to me. Maybe it's just me, but what, what the, the question is a you know, more sensible one, perhaps. That it, it, people worry, I'm going to go to the gym, I'm going to get strong, and I'm going to lose my yoga practice. This is what I hear most often. You know, if I do any strength stuff, it will be a negative uh, impact on my yoga practice. Have you felt that? Or have you, you seem to feel the opposite, that it's actually helped and supported a, a yoga practice. Or have you lost flexibility? People think, oh, I lose the, the kapatasana, and my shoulders will get stiffer, I get too strong. You know, This was always what was said about weight training, especially with, uh, with yoga and you know, ashtanga yoga. You can't put on any weight, any muscle, because your shoulders will get too tight and you won't be able to do any back bends anymore. So yeah, that's just, I mean, for the largest, to the largest extent, that's just not been true for me. Um, mm. And part of it, I think, is because I've emphasized strength training at my end of range. Um, you know, I've been very interested in, say, if it's like a bicep curl, I'm not only going to do this part of the movement, right? I'm going to, I want to go through my full range. And that means using right. a lighter yeah. weight, which is, you know, right. feels less appealing to use a lighter weight, <laughs> but using a lighter weight and going through full range. Um, that's been really helpful to me. Um, the only, I mean, one thing, you know, it's, 
I think also some people worry that strength training is going to actually I don't want to put on muscle, that it want to have bulk or big muscles. It's so hard. <laughs> it's so hard to put on sizable muscle. It's not going to happen accidentally. You've got to really work incredibly hard for it to put on yeah, it large degrees yeah. of muscle mass. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> or, but whatever it is you want to do, yeah. you're going to have to really yeah. to, to build significant muscle mass. And so don't be afraid of weight training from that sense. And um, but one totally. one thing I will say yeah. the. The one kind of cluster of poses that is more challenging at the moment um, are definitely kind of the uh, leg behind the head poses. Um, my shoulders have got broader because I've trained a lot of shoulders, a lot of handstands and stuff. And it's just a bit awkward trying to chuck both legs behind there like I used to. It's kind of getting that second one in place these days is a bit like, come on, how am I going to get my collarbone out? <laughs> and, but I'm kind of, I'm, I'm committed to figuring out a way of doing it, you know, respectfully with my body um because i think that there are ways of doing it and i mean i just say well I, yeah I, look no, look at gymnasts if you go and look, look look at a gymnast go and look at a, a contortionist you know they have incredible strength gymnasts have got a lot of muscle mass and they don't seem to have any issues with flexibility i don't think it's a, it's a um a barrier necessarily no, I reckon you'll find it. I mean, it's formidable what you can do with, your, with, the, with the builds you have as well now from the gym and you're strong and flexible. And, it, you know, it looks sustainable in a way that a lot of people, practitioners, you just think the way that they're pushing into flexibility only, it just doesn't look like it's going to bear out well for the long run. You know, if we want to be able to, you know, age strongly and safely and comfortably, you know, I just kind of would recommend for everyone that you get over. I mean, yeah, when you're young, you can do anything. You know, I did anything. I didn't do anything about yoga. You know, I didn't look carefully at my diet or anything like that, you know, and I was fine because when you're young, you can kind of get away with things. But, you know, as you get older, I think anyone getting, you know, past the thirties, just put the strength stuff on as well as the yoga and it'll just sort you out for, for the long term. you know, so I'm totally an advocate with you there. Um, yeah. yeah, sorry, James. I was going to say, and there's a perspective I came across within certain Tai Chi circles was to train for the physicality for the body you want in 10 years' time. And that's not an mm. aesthetic thing, right? That's the functionality. Like, okay, how do I want my joints to feel in 10 years' time? How do I want my spinal mobility to feel? Uh, and having that longer view, um, I think, is is interesting. Yeah, and you just, again, coming circling back to that kind of more philosophical start that we had and using yoga for for life, for, for feeling comfortable in your body rather than some kind of quasi-metaphysical idea about, I don't know what even, you know, it becomes some kind of potentially comes in there and something about stopping the mind and, you know, it all gets a bit, it all gets a bit murky, to be honest, in my mind, you know, you want clear, tangible ideas. Otherwise, it's going back to the old, you know, look, let's hope and pray for a, a better heaven, you know, basically it's, you know, back into that kind of old, paradigm isn't it of wishing for a, a better rebirth or better life in another world rather than this world you know um mm -hmm. bring it back to the practical again though i want to get you on a couple more practical things and and, and again i recommend people look at I want, I want you to film your gym stuff as well james you know, to film your your gym routines that would be very helpful for people i think to see that you know how sure. you're doing it because because you train holistically I and mean, what you're doing is there's another guy um who, who is doing similar kind of more holistic you know less kind of building muscle training and more like training, as you say, the, this end range flexibility. So I'd like to see how that bears out. But when you mentioned contortionism um, and the techniques that they use, and usually this is a byword in yoga for, uh, for, for negativity, isn't it? It's a pejorative term in yoga. 
oh, you know, contortionist, or you know, they're, oh, you're just being a contortionist, this kind of thing. But you, you know, um, I think it's coming to light now. I mean, I don't know much about it, but there actually is some technique there, you know. Um, and you mentioned that they have technique. Do you, would you say anything? I mean, you know, for me personally as well, I'm interested in, in about what you've learned and incorporated from 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 this. What is a, a, a veritable movement modality in itself? I think, like any movement discipline, there are better approaches and, and let's say, less helpful approaches. Um, and I think if you find a, a really good contortion teacher who has an emphasis on injury prevention long term, and what that usually means is they're very, very focused on strength. Um, and the sort of, I guess, the general population have this misunderstanding that contortion is about being super, super bendy. It's like these people are superhumanly strong. To be able to do a handstand with your bum sat on your head and your legs underneath your chin is a huge degree of strength and control that it takes to get in and out of a shape like that. Um, so I believe good contortion teachers and practitioners really work with strength. Um, and I think, again, it's part of me is it's always looking to strip out the component parts of something and say, okay, well, what is it we're doing here? Let's just be really honest and frank. Like, yes, I, I, I want to do these kind of poses. I'm interested in them. There's, there's ego in there. There's aspiration in there. There's freedom in there. There's all a mixture of things. And we're kind of saying, okay, well, if there is this particular posture, it's a very deep backbend and I want to be able to do it. What other movement modalities are doing similar things and how are they teaching it? How are they approaching it? Now, my yoga practice, it's about presence. It's not about anything else. Like the, the poses are part of one way of finding presence or a connection to presence. Um, but if I go and do a contortion class, I'm not looking for presence. <laughs> I'm looking for a really safe, healthy way of doing this thing that I want to do. Rightly or wrongly, I want to do it and I'm going to do it. And so I'll go and learn from someone who has a very long track record of coaching people for, you know, the best possible expression of that thing. Um, and then I can bring that back into what I'm doing in my practice. And I can have my practice. I can work with certain poses. It's still about presence. It's still my yoga. But I know that one component of that might be very deep background. And I know that I'm going to do that with a lot of knowledge from different sources. And then I can pull all that together and sense what feels right in my body. <laughs> mm. Coming back mm. to embodiment, right? Ultimately, mm. like learn, try it out for yourself. The fundamental teaching of the Buddha, you know, don't just, don't just take my word for it. Um, you know, yeah. try these practices out and see for yourself. Yeah. Um, Suck it and see. But I think um, there's, there's a lot that we can learn, I think, from, from those practices. Yeah, I, I think people are, you know, you know, it goes both ways, doesn't it? I mean, there's a, there's, I see an increasing dogma in certain spheres of the Ashtanga world. I think there's also an increasing openness in, in everyone that I, you know, I'm, I travel around quite a lot now and teach different groups of uh, Ashtanga practitioners. You know, that's my, that's, that's who I teach, you know. Um, and uh, there's a lot of openness there, in fact, to incorporating different ideas. I mean, I was for years telling people you have to keep the feet straight, for example, in a backbend. And then I got a little, you know, there's someone coming after me online saying, you know, actually, if you look at circus performers, there's a lot There's a lot to do with, you know, the, the angle of the hip and the sacrum. Now, if you turn the feet out in a backbend, that might give you more space, depending on the person, you know. So I started using it, you know, like, and, you know, I don't know much that much about other modalities of, of movement, really. But, yeah, it works, you know does work and, and it makes perfect sense if you think that the hip joint is angled externally anyway you know um mm -hmm. having for many people having the back bend 
and having the feet straight in it is is an extremely uh, an over stressful uh, force on on the on the sacrum. So uh, yeah, I think there is a luckily a widening of our sphere perhaps. Um, but I wanted to get back to yeah. just before we finish. I, yeah, oh God, we haven't got long, have we, James? Um, well, how, I wanted to say yeah. just to, just to wrap it up. Uh, you know, how do you square? I mean, you talk about embodiment and. Um, and just having fun and wanting to do things just because you want to do them. And, you know, and what's wrong with that at the end of the day, you know? Um, but how does that kind of relate to the meditation lanes? Is it the same thing you're doing? Because you do it, you know, you have a fixed meditation practice and then, and that's what started the yoga. Are the two things go mm. together or are they different? It's all the same thing. Um, it's never, right. it's never, none of it's ever been divorced of each other for me. And, I think the, the position that I'm at right now, you know, which will evolve and change, the position I'm at right now comes from having had that period of denial that I'm not trying to achieve anything. I don't want anything. I don't need to care about my body. I don't care about the way that I look because it's not important. I want to be detached. I want to be removed. I want to be so spiritually evolved that I am completely free. And... I went down that route and ultimately what I realized is that there's a term that I use yogier than thou, that it's all just an inverse kind of ego. It's an inverse snobbery, this idea like, well, I have to be pristine and clean and pure. I can't do these things. I can't aspire to these things. I can't want to achieve something um, because somehow that's not spiritual. And I had to look within myself and just realize that I was just fooling myself. Um, and many of those, many of those desires and attachments fall away by themselves over the years, just through good practice. And I think trusting in the goodness of the practice to help us evolve, whether we're aiming in the wrong direction or not, I think we're going to take steps towards something which is more helpful and more skillful over time, hopefully. Um, but how does all of that coexist for me now? Um, I think with a sense of humor, I think that I know that everything is impermanent. You know, this incredible Pali word, Anicca, is always in my head, Anicca, 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 that everything is impermanent. Everything is dissolving and crumbling. Nothing is really here ever for long. And I'm going to allow myself to enjoy what is here when it's here and not apologize for that because um, that's part of the part of the way out of shame and addiction is showing up with with honesty with candor like well this is who i am i have aspirations but i'm also human i have desires mm, mm. um how do you square those desires these days do you, do, do you still feel you struggle with the addictive tendencies and, and what do you do if you feel those things do you... it's a perspective that once an addict always an addict i mean whatever terminology you choose to use, I don't really care for terminology, whatever. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, I've been sober and clean for over nine years now from a whole host of substances and, and you know, pretty bad ones, um, quite life-destroying ones. And still the tendency towards obsession and fixation and that kind of addictive energy it's just part of who I am. And I've kind of, I kind of actually love it because I think it is like a superpower if you can direct it into something skillful. Um, I wouldn't want to change that, but I have to watch out, right? Um, you know, it's very easy for me to get 
super kind of hung up on things like coffee or high energy states or constantly chasing these kind of endorphin rushes from intensive physical exercise and movement. Mm. And for the most part, I kind of, I, I see that I allow that to happen. I allow myself to enjoy that provided that I can honestly say to myself that I'm creating enough downtime, enough restorative, enough quiet space. There's times that I'm better at that than others for sure. Mm. Um, but for me, it's, it's still trying to find the balance that that energy exists, that kind of addictive energy is still there. It's in check and doesn't bother me most of the time. Um, mm. but knowing that there, I need to maintain the things which support me, you know, community, a sense of being honest, a sense of not isolating when I really want to, because that's a big one with addiction. Um, maintaining my practice, maintaining my meditation, maintaining my own learning and study, maintaining my own curiosity for everything that I do, um, are a constant support to ongoing recovery. And it's really important, like you were saying before, like I, I, I shared that, you know, recovery in from whatever it is, you are leaving certain patterns or evolving from certain patterns. And it's really helpful to find new things that are supportive um, so it's not all doom and gloom, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's just basically channeling those things, isn't it, really? Um, and it sounds like you're doing a great mm -hmm. job. And, um, yeah, I kind of fancy coming to one of your classes or retreats now. Um, how would you, you know, just to introduce you to people that don't know your teaching, how would you say, I mean, that's a bit of putting you on the spot, really, but what would be your manifesto as a teacher? Like, you know, what are you trying to impart? Or what was your, you know, what's your aim with a group of retreatants, say, or a class? You know, what would you like to think that you're trying to, do as such or teach? I want to hold a space which offers kindness in a way that hasn't been experienced maybe by those people before. First and foremost. Excellent um, answer. Yeah, yeah, I, I like I, it. I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I want to hold kind, compassionate spaces um, because then whatever is shared in those spaces, it sits with the person for that to evolve. I'm not imposing or dictating anything on anybody. I'm sharing something, hopefully from a place of kindness and compassion so that they can get what they need from whatever is offered. Yeah. That's my fundamental starting yeah. point in teaching. Yeah. It's how, yeah. how, how, how is this kind, you know? That's really, really, um, yeah, I'm definitely coming now. Um, all right, well, I guess we've done almost an hour, and I reckon we could probably go on, to be honest. But I always wrap up the podcast. You might have listened to one or two before. I'll ask you the obvious question. Give me a guilty pleasure and inspiration, James, just to finish off. So you have a few guilty pleasures, but ones you can share on camera. And then um, uh, I, uh, an inspiration, anything that inspires you. It's sort of you develop a dark sense of humor as an addict. So my, my immediate go-to is I want to say crystal meth is my guilty pleasure. <laughs> not so much, yeah, exactly, not so much yeah. anymore. That's a, not say, for the that's last... a new one. Yeah, yeah. I haven't heard that many times. <laughs> not for the yeah. not yeah. for the last ten years. Crystal, crystal meth was my guilty pleasure for a long time, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's not been part of my life for a very long time. Um, I don't know. I don't see I do things things as a guilty pleasure. I think pleasure is beautiful. I probably drink way too much coffee and listen to very loud techno more than is reasonable for the average person. But I just love it. I, I love my coffee. I love techno music. And 
Yeah, maybe it's maybe it seems like an odd fit, but that's my that's my high energy. That's my you know excitement and and fun. And we need we need something that's more high energy, right? Um, so for me, it's that. And in terms of what inspires me, um, I'm really inspired actually by the kind of new wave of younger practitioners and teachers moving into these yoga spaces who are coming into the practice and into these spaces with such a strong awareness of social justice and social justice movements, um, you know, racial equality and inequality, gender equity, you know, accessibility, really coming into yoga spaces with difficult but necessary questions around how we move forward with the practice in a way which is more equitable and accessible for all. The people who are coming into the practice with those questions and with that awareness who are so young inspire me incredibly. It's just amazing. Like I wish I wish I could have had that awareness when I started my practice because um, I think what the trajectory of that is if we support and hold space for those discourses um, could be. Mm. It's a great one. Well, it's been a fantastic interview, actually. And um, thanks very much. So we'll get uh, James's uh, details on the show notes for you. Um, and uh, please look him up and, uh, and find him, find his Instagram. And what he shares is really, really necessary these days. So keep it up, James, and put that uh, those gym routines. I think people would love to see a little, a little bit of those. Uh, and you've got a little bit. Um, I've seen a couple. I saw you backbending in the gym, which is fantastic. I love that. Um, and, uh, well you know, noted. Just, uh, yeah, just just keep up the good work, and I hope everyone you know, goes and looks at your stuff and enjoys it as much as I have. So, thanks for coming on, James. It's really much appreciated. Well done. Thank you. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.